You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. A new Chinese cyber espionage group is described. Cobalt strike implants are observed hitting unpatched VMware Horizon servers. Ukraine attributes last week's cyber attacks to Russia. Microsoft doesn't offer attribution, but it suggests that incidents were more destructive than ransomware or simple defacements. The U.S. warns of possible provocations. Ben Yellen looks at a bipartisan TLDR bill. Our guest is Lisa Plagemeyer from the National Cybersecurity Alliance on the ongoing threat of phishing and the our evil arrests in Russia may have been for leverage. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, January 18th, 2022. Trend Micro yesterday reported on an elusive threat actor it calls Earth Luska and that it's been tracking since the middle of last year. Earth Luska is assessed as a Chinese group, part of the Winti cluster, although it represents a distinct operation. Its interests include government and educational institutions, religious movements, pro-democracy and human rights organizations in Hong Kong, COVID-19 research organizations, and the media— all predictable espionage targets, but Earth Luska's activities are mixed. They also extend to some apparently financially motivated operations against gambling and cryptocurrency outfits. Whether that's a central purpose of the group or whether it represents an APT side hustle is unknown. Trend Micro's technical analysis of the group's activity describes its infrastructure, a distinctive strain of malware, and its extensive social engineering. Researchers at Team Huntress, following up on warnings from the UK's NIH, have confirmed that unpatched VMware Horizon servers are now being actively attacked with Cobalt Strike implants. This activity amounts to exploitation of Horizon itself and not the abuse of web shells that were observed earlier. Ukraine has now attributed last week's cyber attacks to Russian operators, and Kiev has found some support for its conclusion among other governments. Microsoft on Saturday released a report on the malware used in the attacks. It was a wiper that represented itself as ransomware. NATO considers its options for defense, deterrence, and response. Kiev has accused Russian services of carrying out last week's cyber attacks with some possible assistance from Belarus. Ukraine's Ministry of Digital Transformation said this weekend, quote, Moscow continues to wage a hybrid war and is actively building forces in the information and cyberspace, end quote. 
Kiev's view is that the operation is a continuation of a hybrid war Russia has waged against Ukraine since its 2014 invasion of Crimea. Ukraine's State Service for Special Communications described the attacks as hitting 70 government sites or resources, 10 of which were subjected to unauthorized interference. But the service claimed that no personal data was leaked and that most affected sites were quickly restored to normal. The state service added some details about how the attackers obtained access to the sites. It was a supply chain attack. Quote, The attackers hacked the infrastructure of a commercial company that had administrative access to the web resources affected by the attack. End quote. Which commercial vendor was hit remains unspecified. It's worth noting that a supply chain attack through ME Doc tax preparation software was used in 2017's NotPetya attack, which has been generally attributed to Russian intelligence services. The cyber operations, coming as they do as Russian troops are reported to have marshaled in assembly areas near the Ukrainian border, have been received by NATO as battlespace preparation. The U.S. has said that the cyber attacks have the hallmarks of a disinformation operation intended to afford Russia a pretext for military action. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki went on the record concerning the possibility of false flags during Friday's daily media brief. Here are her remarks, as recorded by C-SPAN. As part of its plans, Russia is laying the groundwork to have the option of fabricating a pretext for invasion. And we've seen this before. We saw this before leading up to 2014, just to note, uh, including through sabotage activities and information operations by accusing Ukraine of preparing an imminent attack against Russian forces in eastern Ukraine uh, and the Russian military plans to begin these activities several weeks before a military invasion, which could begin between mid-January and mid-February. Again, we saw this playbook before, including the widespread effort to to push out misinformation, not just in Eastern Europe, but around the global community. Ukraine's Ministry of Digital Transformation agrees that the cyber attacks represented at one level disinformation in the service of influence operations. Quote, its goal is not just to intimidate society, but to destabilize the situation in Ukraine by stopping the public sector's work and undermining Ukrainians' confidence in their government. End quote. False flags and disinformation are a longer game, but Friday's cyber incidents may have had some more immediate effects. The cyber attacks may have been intended to provide cover for other more destructive operations. Microsoft said on Saturday that it hadn't been able to draw connections between Friday's cyber attacks against Ukraine and any of the threat actors it tracks. It is, however, confident that the attack involved the use of a wiper— that is, malware whose intent was the destruction of data, not their temporary denial, as in a conventional ransomware attack, or their theft. The operation is being called Whispergate, and Microsoft has given the threat actor behind it the temporary tracking identifier DEV-0586. The attack is, Microsoft says, a two-stage operation. Stage 1 overwrites the master boot record to display a faked ransom note. Stage 2 of the attack installs a file corruptor malware. That malware is still undergoing analysis. Microsoft has provided a set of indicators of compromise organizations can use to assess their risk. To return again to NotPetya, that earlier incident also involved the use of a wiper dressed up as ransomware, so this too would be out of a familiar playbook. 
Website Ukraine Forum reports that NATO, having condemned last week's cyber attacks, is working with closer cooperation on cyber defense with Ukraine. According to Reuters, the U.S. has offered Ukraine whatever it needs to recover from those attacks, and Interfax Ukraine says that Franco-American talks have addressed common preparations to render such aid to Kiev. Russia denies any involvement in the cyber attacks and disclaims any intention to invade Ukraine. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said in a CNN interview, quote, We have nothing to do with it. Russia has nothing to do with these cyber attacks. Ukrainians are blaming everything on Russia, even their bad weather in their country. End quote. That said, Russian President Vladimir Putin has given the U.S., and by implication NATO, a soft deadline for meeting Russia's demands. It's set to expire, roughly, on January 20th. He's outlined three demands, Russia Matters reports. Demand number one, no more NATO expansion eastward, especially to Ukraine and Georgia. Demand number two, NATO withdraws military infrastructure placed in Eastern European states after 1997. And demand number three, U.S. and NATO deploy no-strike systems in Europe, such as intermediate and short-range missiles that would be capable of striking targets in Russia. Should the U.S. refuse, and it would be expected to formally accede to or reject the demands, Russia Matters describes the Kremlin's probable next move. Quote, This written refusal to honor Russia's demands could then be used in a rhetorical battle on the international stage over which side is to be blamed when Russia subsequently claims it has been compelled to act vis-à-vis Ukraine and the West. Be this via the deployment of nuclear attack systems along Russia's western frontiers, including Kaliningrad as well as Belarus, the deployment of systems in Cuba and Venezuela, and or another intervention in Ukraine. End quote. The CyberWire's continuing coverage of the crisis in Ukraine can be found on our website. In response to an increase of governments requiring people to obtain and, under some circumstances, present evidence of vaccination against COVID-19, criminals are selling fraudulent PCR and test certificates. Checkpoint says the bogus certificates are for the most part being distributed by the Telegram messaging app and that some regions have seen increase in such fraud of up to 600%. And finally, U.S. officials have said, according to the record, that one of the members of Our Evil arrested last week by Russian authorities may have been responsible for the ransomware attack on Colonial Pipeline last spring. Trustwave back in November reported that Eastern European cybercriminal circles were beginning to wonder whether the safe haven they'd so long enjoyed were about to be closed to them. Those worries are probably as premature as hopes for a new age in Russo-American cooperation, a false sunset to go with a false dawn. The Kremlin's withdrawal of what amounts to a letter of mark is likely, Cyber Reason told IT Pro, to be purely tactical, designed to darken counsel while Russia pursued its interests in Ukraine. Impunity can be restored as easily as it's withdrawn, And besides, there's no real risk of extradition to the U.S., so a sabbatical in Club Fed seems unlikely in the extreme. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. 
and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program. Quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The National Cybersecurity Alliance is a nonprofit public private partnership promoting cybersecurity and privacy education and awareness. The organization dates back to 2001 and focuses on bridging the gaps between private industry, government, and the public at large. Lisa Plagemeyer is interim executive director of the National Cybersecurity Alliance, and I caught up with her recently for insights on the state of phishing. I think there's definitely greater awareness. We did a lot of speaking events. We, we, you know, we get invited by corporations and organizations of all sizes to, to speak during Cybersecurity Awareness Month in October. And just anecdotally from the, the companies that I was speaking to, we also surveyed a lot of their employees during one of the talks that I gave. There was a chance for audience participation and a couple of poll questions. And I see a, a big difference between people, I'll say people of working age and their awareness of phishing. And, you know, most of these people, especially if you're at a large American company or even a smaller, medium-sized company these days, you're being sent simulated fish by your employer. And so that does a, that does a lot to raise awareness. I have a 20-something who's in her first job out of college, and she is so pumped when she recognizes all of those simulated fish that her employer sends her. And they have a contest. They have a leaderboard, you get a gift card to their company store so you can get yourself some swag. She tracks that. I mean, she's excited by that. And and she also likes the way I think that it makes her feel. It makes her feel smarter than a bad guy because 
she can spot these things. And I would, I would hazard to guess that a couple of years ago when she was in college, she could have cared less and it just wasn't top of mind for her. So I think the more companies that run simulated fishing programs that do it in a way that encourages your employees, that makes them feel good about what they've learned, that makes them feel smarter than a bad guy. I think that's all really positive, you know, as opposed to running a program that's more punitive. So if you treat it like training, not like human penetration testing, I think it can it can do a lot to raise awareness. I've also noticed that people seem less inconvenienced by security than they have in the past. Hmm. I think with this increasing awareness of things like phishing has also come an increased awareness that, hey, you know, sometimes security is a little bit inconvenient or it might take me a few extra seconds to check an email or use multi-factor authentication, but I'm okay with that because it's all about being more secure. I think a couple of years ago, I just, you know, because I work in security, I'll have, you know, friends that will always like to gripe to me about, you know, oh, my company turned on MFA or this, <laughs> this, this e-commerce site turned on MFA and I have to use it or a financial institution and they like to complain about it. I don't hear that so much anymore. And I know that's completely anecdotal, but, um, but this is just the general feeling that I get. Yeah, you know, it, it strikes me like I, I, I sometimes use the analogy that, you know, you can do all the right things. You can you can wash your hands. You can, uh, you know, wipe down surfaces with antibacterial things. But every now and then you're still going to get a cold. And that's just sort of the way it is. But you, you can't be fatalistic about this. You still have to do those basics and you're going to be better off for it. You don't stop doing those things because what you're doing is is mitigating your risk. You're reducing your risk. If you did none of those things, then your risk would be much higher of getting sick. So it's really about risk management. That's Lisa Plagemeyer from the National Cybersecurity Alliance. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, but also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Uh, Interesting story from the folks over at the Washington Post. This is written by Christiana Lima, and it's titled, No One Reads the Terms of Service. Lawmakers want to fix that with a new TLDR bill. Ben, what's going on here? So we've talked many times on this podcast and on Caveat about how nobody reads the EULAs. They're too long. They're 300 pages. It's written in legalese. Nobody understands them. Members of Congress want to do something about that, and this is a bipartisan effort. So there was a bill introduced in the House called the TLDR Act. You and I were very curious as to how they would make this uh, TLDR, which of course is too long, didn't read, into a legislative acronym. (laughs) And they did not disappoint. Uh, The act may be cited as the Terms of Service Labeling Design and Readability Act, which frankly is brilliant. (laughs) I would like to give a Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize to the legislative staffer uh, who who came up with that because that well done, absolutely fantastic. So the purpose of the bill would be to require companies uh, to have terms of service that are readable and easy to understand for 
the average user. And then Hmm. another part of the bill uh, would require these companies to disclose whether they had been hit by recent data breaches and make very clear what sensitive personal data they are allowed to collect. Uh, So this is the House bill. The Senate counterparts, um, this is a Senate bill proposed by Democrat Ben Ray Lujan of New Mexico and Republican Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. It's largely identical, uh, but they didn't come up with a brilliant acronym for uh, their piece of legislation. So if I'm a member of Congress, I'm uh, advocating that we adapt the the House version, because (laughs) how much better could it be than having a TLDR act? Let me ask you this. So as a lawyer yourself, isn't the whole notion of legal jargon in direct tension with the idea of having a version of that that is easy to read and understand? Yes. Uh, I think there's parts of EULA's terms of service that need to be written out in 300 pages because at some point the lawyers are going to be pouring over them. The -hmm. problem is it's not the lawyers. You know, we don't call our attorney and have them read the terms of service before we press the I agree button. Um, At least most people don't do that. And I think the purpose of this legislation is to decouple the actual legalese, the very complicated terms you know, that dictate whether the company is liable, when they're liable, you know, what liability they're disclaiming. Decouple that with something that's just very easy for the average consumer to understand. Um, you know, I certainly think it is in the interest of consumers and therefore in the interests of, of members of Congress to make these more readable uh, for people so that they know exactly what they are agreeing to. That doesn't mean you completely displace the 300 pages of legal jargon. It just means the company has to summarize that in a way that's readable, understandable for the average consumer. Do you think that is ultimately achievable? I do. I do. Um, You know, this might be a part of a larger piece of legislation. Uh, If there is ever data privacy legislation, um, you know, some sort of breach notification law, maybe they would tuck this in uh, as, as a rider to that bill. Uh, but I could certainly see this as, as something that Congress uh, would have the fortitude to do, you know, given that it has bipartisan support. They've held a lot of hearings, you know, uh, over the past couple of years about some of the abusive practices of these tech companies. So it's certainly an area ripe for regulation. Um, so I would not be surprised at all to see a version of this uh, get enacted. And, you know, I think it would make life uh, a little bit easier for most of us who don't take the time to actually read through those terms and conditions and give us some sort of meaningful consent when we agree to the the EULA when we download that new application. So yeah, I I think the chances are decent uh, that this could actually turn into uh, a law and, you know, fingers crossed because I think it's a really good idea. All right. Well, time will tell. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, 
Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.